Hello and welcome to Tricycle Talks. I'm James Shaheen, editor and publisher of Tricycle The Buddhist Review. The United States and the world watched in shock last month when on January 6th, a mob of Trump supporters, many of them white and motivated by racist and nativist ideologies, laid siege to the U.S. Capitol as lawmakers were certifying the 2020 presidential election results. As the U.S. tries to rally around unity instead of division, I've been taking stock of recent events by looking inward at why we as a nation need to deal with the roots of suffering first before we can move toward collective healing. Race-based suffering, resilience, and transformation are at the core of a new collection of freedom stories written by Black Buddhist voices. Today, I'll be speaking about what it means to be Black and Buddhist in America with the book's two editors, Ayo Tunde, a pastoral counselor and practitioner in the Zen and Insight traditions, and Cheryl Giles, a clinical psychologist and spiritual counselor. Ayo Tunde and Cheryl Giles, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank, thank you, James. How are you both doing? It's been quite a week. Yes, and a predictable one at that. So I'm not taken by surprise, and I, and, and also I'm saddened at the same time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say I, I was not taken by surprise, but it was still horrifying to watch last Wednesday mm-hmm. yeah, at the yeah, Capitol. Absolutely. Well, this book comes just in time. I wanted to ask you a few things about it. So why don't we start at the beginning? You begin the book with a traditional dedication of merit to George Floyd and all the unarmed Black women and men who have been killed by the police. But you also extend well wishes to the police officers involved in Floyd's death and white supremacists. Now, this may be hard for many people to wrap their heads around, Buddhists and non-Buddhists alike. Is it for you, Ayo? I'll say that um, one of the most profound teachings I have received in Buddhism comes from the Plum Village tradition, Thich Nhat Hanh tradition. And there's a poem written by Thai called Please Call Me By My True Names where he, in his non-dualistic, poetic, social justice fashion, talks about how we are the frog and the mayfly, the pirate and the girl raped by the pirate. And so over the years, I've come to learn more about my ability to perpetrate and be a victim of perpetration. And so I think it's important for our collective healing that we all recognize that we are all capable of evil and we are all capable of great goodness. And that consistently and constantly blaming others while not taking responsibility for the harms that we do will not further the interest of a collective healing. I was thinking that this really describes a situation that we're in right now, deeply divided. Lots of judgments going back and forth, and so divided that we can't hear each other. And it doesn't leave any room for curiosity or spaciousness. It's either this or that. And one of the gifts of Buddhism, and I think that poem that I just mentioned is a great example of reflecting to us that there is another side of us and that we all have the capacity to hold both of those things within us, which is one of the reasons why we meditate. I have to acknowledge that the challenge of maintaining equanimity is especially tough in such a polarized social and political climate. And yet, the contributors you've included, including the two of you, are wholeheartedly committed to the path of nonviolence. 
My question is how should one protect oneself and stay committed to peace in a culture that can be so hostile? My thought initially is that there's nonviolence for social change purposes, and there's also the wisdom of protecting oneself against harm that is not about social change, but about self-preservation. And so I have come to the conclusion that self-preservation is actually a spiritual movement when it is embodied by an oppressed person. We need to learn to love ourselves and to know that we are worthy of this birthright of being able to breathe and be. And so to be in the continual gaze of intentional threats against our bodies, our mental health, to say that I love myself enough to protect my body and my mind and my spirit. I'm not going to let people just walk over me, run over me, and kill me. That's different than whether one makes a choice between violent or nonviolent social change. And so if any of us had been on the Capitol at the time of the violence that took place recently, nonviolence would not have resulted in social change. It would have only resulted in probably more destruction. So I don't want to confuse nonviolence for self-preservation and nonviolence for social change. Right. That's well said. You know, this book brings together a lot of different voices. And in your introduction, you say these stories show a unified path joining everyday ordinary life with transformative spiritual practices. I see that as a form of self-preservation, living with both inner transformation in mind, and at the same time, you talk about everyday ordinary life. How do these liberation stories offer a different way of being, of relating to ignorance, anger, fear, pain? One of the things I was thinking about was that we can be consumed by anger and rage and therefore be ineffective. I think we have to focus on practice as a way to really center ourselves and become grounded. What we saw on the Capitol a few days ago is uh, an example of people who have come totally unhinged and in that way become ineffective. We have to learn to get out of our own way. And when we are totally absorbed in our own thinking, we can often become isolated and become angry and full of rage and unhinged. And those are the kinds of things I think that make us feel uncentered and we're really at risk to create harm. So meditation, grounding ourselves in meditation is really an important thing for us to really work on and developing a a kind of radical love that allows us to see others as we see ourselves. Let's back up for a sec. Could you tell me a little bit about how this book came to be and who it's for? You know, there are many African-American Buddhist leaders who can write a book about Buddhism on the themes of collective liberation. So why not write an anthology and why not ask my beloved mentor, Cheryl Giles, to co-edit it with me? Individual African-American Buddhist practitioners have written books. Dr. Jan Willis, Dr. Charles Johnson, Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams, Lama Rod Owens, and several others. So we thought sometimes when that happens, when Black people do that in a predominantly white setting, it's easy to say, oh, that Black person is the exception. There's that one Black Buddhist over there. There's that one Tibetan Lama over there. There's that one Zen priest over there. And we wanted to reflect in this book that there's actually major movement of the embrace of Buddhism in the Black community. 
And this book can be seen perhaps to be building some momentum for that movement. Is that correct? It does appear that way. We were writing to an audience that were largely BIPOC people, people that we felt and saw and heard were deeply suffering during the pandemic, but also suffering before we even became isolated by the coronavirus, that were holding racism and trauma in their bodies, in their intergenerational history, people who were struggling for perhaps their entire lives. And so it became important to write to this audience. But as we started to write, my sense is that what we were writing about transcended color, race, context, all those things, in the sense that we other people could really tap into that and recognize that, oh yeah, this may be true for me. I think we were trying to make visible some of the things that were maybe universally held, but deeply challenging for all of us, which is stay with the kind of inner transformation around mind, body, and speech that really needs to happen in order to endure, in order to stay on the path of not just Buddhist practice, but stay on the path of liberation so that we can really, really keep working to free ourselves in so many different ways. Picking up where Cheryl left off, freeing ourselves in different ways may imply that we are enslaved in different ways. Our minds can be enslaved to many things regardless of what we look like, no matter you know who our families consist of, no matter our social conditioning. And when we think about what it means to be free, obviously we will bring our own interpretation, right, from our cultural conditioning to what that means. But I would say that this book obviously privileges African-American voices, but because it's about Buddhism, you know it's going to be about a universal existential concern that we have, and that is, how can I be my freest self, my most liberated self, when life can be really, really hard? And in that way, I often find that all people can benefit from learning how targeted people make it through. Right. From the very outset, this project poses a question that is long overdue. What can Buddhism teach us about race? But I'm curious, what has being Black taught each of you about Buddhism? Yeah. Well, in short, if I learned that Buddhism is a path to transform my suffering, and as a Black, brown-bodied person, I enter a Buddhist community to transform my suffering, and I hear that, oh, race-based suffering is not something we deal with here then I'm going to try to find a place where I can deal with that. Because really, you know, I don't need more of that. I've already got that. I'm trying to find refuge from that here, right? It occurred to me the other day, when we sit in silence with each other, we do create a certain container for examining ourselves, but we really don't get to know each other. We really don't get to know the causes of your suffering, whether those particular ways that you suffer. I want to hear about that, and I want to see if there's a way I can support that. And if you're a white-bodied person and you come into a sangha and you have no skill in that, when a black or brown-bodied person comes and says, my suffering is about X, Y, Z, it's very race-based. It's very likely that that same dynamic, that same racist, if you will, privileged dynamic is going to play out in the sangha itself. Because what I think what we know is that just sitting 
does not transform racism. It doesn't transform alone. It does not transform racial superiority complexes, nor does it transform alone inferiority complexes. We don't have the luxury of spiritual bypass. We know that the institution of racism and white supremacy is, we've been living it for several hundred decades at this point, and we experience it every day. And as we think about Black Buddhists and Black people, BIPOC people around the country, watching the violence that's been taking place, trying to manage during a pandemic, dealing with health inequities and those kinds of things, that one of the things that this calls for, to me, is really working on a kind of spiritual transformation. We need to get ready and be ready and stay ready for the long haul. We're in this, and this is our legacy. This is us. We got to be ready for the long haul. So whatever those challenges might be, we have to keep working them. And we know from neuroscience that we can change our brains. We can change our behavior. We can relearn to do things that in the past we have been unable to do. So I think these are some of the things that are really resonating with me in the conversations that I've been having. What Black and Buddhist argues is that the issue of race is a spiritual issue that Sanghas need to address. In what ways has spiritual bypassing contributed to racial ignorance and colorblindness in Buddhist communities? May I offer this? I have a softness about me regarding people who say race is a construct and I'm colorblind. Because I think what I'm hearing in that is that they have the desire not to be a racist. And so I don't want to shut them down when they say these things. I would rather that they direct that intention to the white people they are with, not the black and brown people. Because when you say that to a black and brown person, then you are risking undermining their experience of being targets of racism. But if you turn that towards the white people you're with, then you can have a really good conversation about constructs and colorblindness that might actually be useful. It sounds like the underlying assumption here is that we must recognize there is an issue before we go about trying to change it. And my suspicion is that colorblindness in the Sangha has had something to do with that. Would you agree? When I was a financial advisor and I learned that the company I was working with had engaged in unethical practices, I went to another firm. At that firm, I learned that they were engaged in the same unethical practices. (laughs) (laughs) So then I went to another firm and learned the same thing. And then I learned, oh, this is system wide. This is not particular to this office, to this company. Likewise, with the sanghas, it wasn't particular to the sangha that they were not open to dealing with the suffering caused by racism. This is throughout most of our sanghas. And so I hope that this book can be a guide for helping sanghas be more hospitable towards Black and brown bodies. Because if you're looking to the sutras, for specific guidance on how to be hospitable to Black and brown bodies, many of whom, if not all, are carrying intergenerational or trans-historical trauma as the result of slavery, Jim Crow, and all that that meant, you're not going to find it in the sacred texts. Thanks for that, Io. 
Now we're going to take a short break to hear from our sponsor, St. John's College. We'll be right back. St. John's College in Santa Fe, New Mexico, is for undergraduate and graduate students who seek meaning in their lives, who ask hard questions of themselves and their world, and who dare to free their minds. The Graduate Institute is home for students seeking a lifelong commitment to thoughtful, collaborative inquiry into fundamental human questions. Students pursuing the Master of Arts in Eastern Classics examine the core literary, philosophical, and theological works of India, China, and Japan. In small, discussion-based classes, students delve both deep and wide into the richness of Asian traditions and study one of two ancient languages, classical Chinese or Sanskrit. The three-semester Eastern Classics program offers the flexibility of both online and on-campus options. Come join this vibrant community of learners from all walks of life. Learn more about the St. John's Master of Arts in Eastern Classics, including online options, at sjc.edu slash tricycle. That's sjc.edu slash tricycle. We're back with Ayo Yatunde and Cheryl Giles, who recently published a new anthology celebrating Black and Buddhist voices. Cheryl, as a clinical psychologist who specializes in intergenerational trauma and end-of-life care, you frame Buddhist suffering not as something that is carried over from past lives necessarily, but as a kind of felt karma that is passed down through generations. Could you say a bit more about that? Several years ago, I was working at Boston Medical Center in child psychiatry, also covered an emergency room. And this was quite a while ago, actually, when a lot of people began to write about trauma and were using the diagnosis of PTSD, post-traumatic stress. We never at all thought about the body and the impact of what the trauma that they were seeing, whether it's community violence or intergenerational trauma, that, that we could hold that in the body. And it wasn't until years later, now that we're really focused on the impact and how that kind of trauma stays in your body, stays in your brain, stays in your whole nervous system over years and years and years, and that that's where the work needs to happen. The somatic mindfulness, the somatic work that has to take place. All these people that were coming to therapy that wanted help, a lot of them could be supported by being in a sangha or being in a community center or being on a team or other ways of really beginning to rework the trauma that they've experienced in their bodies and the ways that their bodies have really been slaved or controlled by the trauma that they experience. And I started getting triggered thinking, oh, okay, well, maybe there's something here for me that I need to pay attention to. And after going through several therapists, I finally found somebody who could begin to help me. But the Buddhism also was a big piece, how to combine both of those things around living with the trauma, and then what do you do with the trauma that you're experiencing? How do you manage that in a way that's going to be useful to you and allow you to live more fully? The body is a prominent theme that runs throughout the book. Almost without exception, each of the writers references the body in ways similar to what you just described, either as being disembodied, cut off from the body, or embarking on a journey back to the body, feeling grounded in the body. We did not say authors write about the body. If that's what you picked up on, and sounds like it is, 
then that's because that's a cultural phenomenon that we all share. And so my hope is that Black and Buddhists will be that that piece that you're not going to find in the sacred text, that our bodies are considered sacred texts. And we are bringing that to the sanghas. Ancestors come up a lot throughout the book as well, Cheryl. It's at the heart of one of the visualization practices you offer to readers. What can we gain by bringing ancestors with us into our meditation practice? One of the things that I hear in there is an appreciation for those that have gone before us. And in my practice, I use the benefactor practice to call upon our ancestors, uh, many of some I know, many of whom are unknown to me. And this is a Tibetan practice that I've learned that in calling on them to be with me and they surround me, they become a field of refuge for me offering loving kindness and unconditional love. Part of that practice is to visualize that, to sit with it, to feel it in your body, feel the light that they bring, the love that they bring, feel that throughout parts of your body, and really absorb that. And and that, that love is a reminder of our original goodness, that in a way, part of our suffering and our struggle is being separated from or caught up in delusions of what we experience. And if you think about that in terms of the whole world, or at least in the U.S., we're really in a big delusion, right? And we've seen how it can be combustible over the last few days and particularly over the last four years. But the power of benefactors to reaffirm who we are, reaffirm our blackness, our humanness, is really powerful. And that's one of the things that I work on in my practice is really seeing those benefactors there with me all the time. And that enables me to really step out into situations that are really challenging for me. That enables me to trust when I feel afraid or trust when I feel anxious. One of the things that I love about the book that we put out is that there's so many different practices so that people can enter at different points. They're practices that people can take small bites from and begin to try to use or make sense of. Um, What role would I have, say, as a white Buddhist in this project? Is there anything that you are open to learning from non-white Buddhist practitioners about how to be free and how to be in solidarity for freedom for all people? Mm -hmm. You know, what's really funny, it's a secret, I'm going to tell you a secret, which is Buddhism is an indigenous... (laughs) (laughs) It is an indigenous (laughs) tradition founded by a person of color who, in the context of a society where it's caste-oriented, right, still is, saying, hey, you got to show me where this self is. And I'm talking about with a capital S. You've got to show me where this entitlement comes from. I don't see it. I don't see it. I don't believe that is nobility, to believe that just because you're born into a certain caste, that entitles you to have power and privilege overall. I'm not buying that. And so if we think of that as part of the heart of Buddhist practice, right? Show me the evidence of your superiority. Now we can have a conversation that is liberative and freedom-oriented and caste-destabilizing. So what advice would you give to a Buddhist of color who may feel isolated or alone in a mostly white sangha? Well, first thing is don't be surprised. Expect that. 
if it's not put out there that that's a BIPOC sangha, and if it's not put out there that they come from a particular country, like immigrant sangha, then don't be surprised if it's predominantly white or all white. Notice how you feel. This is part of the Buddhist practice, the mindfulness of the body. Notice how you feel as you enter the place. Ask yourself, is that from my conditioning or from what is being expressed right here and now? Find someone who's willing to make eye contact with you. Notice that friendly face. Forget the sea of whiteness and go to that person. Tell them why you're there. Ask if that person would be willing to talk with you afterwards about what this community is about and who is welcome and how they know that. I think it's important to break past the representations to get with what is real. Of course, what is real may be what is represented, but at least to give ourselves a chance of practicing resilience in whiteness and not be deluded by the negative representations that we may have experienced in the past. Cheryl, what about you? That particular question cuts close to home. I think I had a strong sense of feeling othered in the community that I was trying to be fully in. I had positions of responsibility, administrative positions by being on the board and doing other kinds of things, but always didn't quite ever feel like I was at home. Took a lot of internal energy out of me. And so at this point, I am not in any particular sangha. I still have the training that I had as a student of Tibetan Buddhism. But this is a place of struggle for me right now, to be perfectly honest. Uh, And uh, it's been heightened by the pandemic. And that's been both a blessing and something that I struggle with. A blessing in the sense that things are now online. I get to sit with other people. But I have no idea where I'm going. And so I'm sort of sitting with curiosity. And I know that things change all the time. So I don't have a heavy investment that I need to get any place. I'm continuing my practice and looking for openings and connection with people like working on this book with Io and the other contributors that are here. Are you hopeful about the diversity efforts that are being made by various sanghas? Of course, it's never easy. It moves and fits and starts a few steps forward, a step back. But are you optimistic, either one of you? I mean, the book is a very optimistic book, I think, in many ways. It's a very powerful book. But just on the ground, how are you feeling? I'm very optimistic, and I'm also very realistic. This is an ongoing project. So everyone who is invested in the diversity, equity, inclusion efforts within Sangha is doing good work. It's dynamic. You may not see the outcome immediately. You may never see the outcome. And I think if we do the work with the understanding that the work needs to be handed off like a baton in a relay, that the work just continues, it just continues, it continues. We just experienced what might be historically in the United States, the biggest racist mob attack in the history of our country. Does that mean there's no 14th Amendment? No. Does that mean that we didn't have Barack Obama as president? No. Does that mean that lynching laws have not been abolished? They have been. So we are going to have these moments of shock, awe, surprise, discouragement. Other people will see it as a a moment of celebration. But what do we hand off to the next generation? To me, that's what's most important. And that's what keeps me optimistic. Mm -hmm. Because there will be another generation, and we do have the ability to hand it off. And we are doing the work. 
like never before. So what more needs to be done for lasting structural change? It sounds to me like this might be an inside job. This is where the equanimity comes in because we've got to really develop a kind of mental stillness, mental calm, because I'm riding a wave and I can't get too low. I've got to try to really stay in a place that's central, a place that's neutral. It doesn't mean there isn't fluctuations, but I am hopeful. And what, what's really exciting for me is to see beyond the pandemic that Black Lives Matter and all these other groups are really showing up and staying with this. And that's, that's really important. That's how change really happens. And there will be people who are watching this, noticing this, and begin to raise questions in their own groups or in their own mind and heart that will also stimulate some change. And then you have tricycle. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously, there's only so much folks can do on the ground to shift a culture, right? But then when you get on a meta level where the cultural representations, magazines, podcasts, so on, are also down with the struggle, that has an impact as well on a different level. And so with more diverse sanghas, more diverse leaders, cultural representations committed to the cause, there are a lot of reasons to be optimistic. Another theme that runs through the book is the idea of resilience. What does that word mean to you? Or what could it mean? I think the common understanding, at least uh, in the media, is that resilience means that you pop back. None of us really work that way, where we experience something and we quickly pop back. In my mind, resilience has to do with putting in place the things that are going to enable you to stay in the game for the long haul. So whether you think about Black Lives Matter or the, the movement chaplains or any number of things, it's really about developing practices that are going to allow you to stay with what's going on, but also having some understanding of what you've learned and using that wisdom from those insights to keep people going. We want staying power, developing staying power. You know, it takes a lot of mental training, seems to me, and compassion work that allows us to do that. I really want to focus on that word resilience for a moment because in the wrong minds, it is used as an excuse, as a reason to harm Black people, consciously or unconsciously. So for example, there's a study out there that was done by medical residents about their views on the Black body. And a large majority of those students believed that Black people, these are medical students, right? Medical students, that Black people have thicker skin, thicker blood, And as a consequence of our physical differences, that we can endure pain at greater degrees. And consequently, we don't need the meds. We don't need pain medication when we ask for it. Because these doctors think that we have something physical that protects us from being in deep, deep pain. And that is also understood as a sort of resilience. And so it's really important, I think, in this conversation that we say to white-bodied people who are trying to understand what it's like to be Black, our skin's not thicker, our blood is not thicker, we experience pain and suffering just like everyone else. And as a consequence, when we say we are in pain, we need to be believed. And in that belief, then, we need to be attended to if nothing else, just to have space to grieve or to moan or to mourn and have that experience witnessed and believed 
and attended to compassionately. Also, as it relates to resilience, when I was doing my research on the psycho-spiritual experiences of African-American, Buddhist, lesbians in the insight tradition, what I learned in that research was that through retreats, mindfulness practice, loving-kindness meditation, and actually having a leadership role in Sangha, that these things support what I call a remarkable relational resilience. So not resilience as in a physical resilience, but as in because of these practices. How have you dealt with feeling like an outsider in these spaces, being othered? As a triply minoritized person dealing with various levels of oppression, I still believe that the world is good. I still engage with people who are different from myself. I'm still open to engaging in dialogue with people who have different belief systems from my own. And I believe that engaging in these differences edifies me. So that's a remarkable relational resilience from a group of people who could very easily say, I don't want any parts of this world because y'all don't know how to act. I was thinking about what you were saying in terms of that study, and I do remember reading that. And as you were saying that, I was thinking that for medical students or any student now to think about it in that way is kind of like a colonized consciousness, that that in a way, are they talking about the fact that Black people's, that our skin and our blood is thicker because as enslaved beings, we were so beaten down and still got back up? That's, that's the image that I had thinking that, oh yeah, you think we're tougher because we've endured this history of slavery and violence. And so that in some ways we're super, but really underneath that is really a kind of a dehumanizing way of of thinking about kind of consciousness, thinking about black people. Oh, you're not going to hurt as much because you're not really, if you're fully human, then you pinch me. Yeah, I'm I'm, going to hurt. Ouch. But you know, you can go on. We know you can go on. Your blood is thicker. Your skin is thicker. You can endure anything. So that was one of the things that popped up. I thought, oh, this is colonized consciousness here where, you know, you're really sort of stuck in talking about something that is so racist and in seeing people in a kind of prescribed way that really needs to be just thrown out. There's a lot of pain in these stories. I have to say, sometimes I was thinking when I was reading Ruth King's story, I had to stop for a minute. Mm. I really had to stop. I became very sad. And yet, at the same time, they're offering the BIPOC community, and again, ultimately all of us, different ways of being. They're liberation stories. Mm-hmm. Can you say something about that? You know, we carry narratives. And I think through Buddhist practice, for me, what I've learned is I don't have to carry the narratives that have been handed down. So if race is a construct, who's constructing it? And do I play any part in my own construction? of what it means to be Black for myself. I know Black people who don't consider themselves Black, and they have the right to do that, to define themselves. We all have the right to do that. But what are those ingredients that we include in our reconstructed narrative? So for example, Buddhism, and I will throw in Zen and non-dualism, have helped me to understand that I have a consciousness that is not limited to what other people think being Black is. There may have been a time where I thought being Black meant you had to look a certain way, dress a certain way, speak a certain way, and you were definitely Christian. I met someone recently who said, I've never met a Black Buddhist. There's nothing in society until recently 
that would permit Black people to be proud, Black, and Buddhist, because that meant some kind of betrayal of the Black community, the Black church, and what have you. But in this book, what we see is there are at least two contributors who talk about their love of Jesus, while they also claim being Buddhist. So we have a consciousness that is way beyond the constructs of race in this society, and we can be who we want to be. And I learned that through Buddhism. Yeah, and my my hope is that this book will really encourage these kinds of conversations, because even as you're speaking now, I'm learning more about things that I don't ordinarily talk about. So the, the whole question of multiple belonging is something that we talk a lot about at Harvard where I teach, but also the whole question of really claiming oneself and being okay with yourself is something I think that really is one of the threads that goes through the book, that it's okay to be you where you are and to let go of fixing, trying to be different, trying to be what you think somebody else wants you to be. And we all know that that's not reality. That's our minds kind of really working us up to put us in a spin about something that's really outside of ourselves. This book is such a clear celebration of Blackness. Lama Rod Owens writes, I want my Blackness to be supported by my Dharma practice, not erased by it. And Sabine Selassie talks about turning toward her Blackness. But in mainstream Buddhist circles, there seems to be sometimes an impulse to transcend the relative and jump right into the absolute. But these writers are saying, no, wait, we need to fully inhabit blackness and acknowledge suffering that happens in our relative realities. Can you say something about that? Isn't black still beautiful? (laughs) (laughs) You know, surely that wasn't just some passing mantra sung by James Brown uh, that we could all get down and funky with. I mean, think about it. There is so much beauty in blackness, in the black experience, in black culture. There's a movie out now that that I think really speaks to this, which is Sylvie's Love. It's shot as if it was made in the 60s with the grain in the film and so on. And what I love about this movie, it's a love story. And it's a love story that could not have been shot in the 60s. There was no audience. They didn't think there would be an audience for something like that, a love like that between two Black people in the 1960s. And as someone who who grew up in the 60s, I could really appreciate them filling in that gap of that kind of Black love, that, that beauty for Black love that was real and is real, but couldn't be shown. Mm-hmm. And so if you see it, I think you'll see what I mean. It's beautiful. Being Black is beautiful. And so when we say we're accepting ourselves through Buddhist practice, when we're accepting things as they are, We are accepting ourselves as unique individuals with a history, with a lineage, with our ancestors from multiple countries throughout the world, with a continent, with kings and queens, with the pain of war, colonization, and slavery. We accept all of that without shame and without guilt. And that's what it means to me to be accepting ourselves as beautiful Black people. Actually, I wanted our initial title to be Black, Beautiful, and Buddhist. That's right. That's right. (laughs) Uh, I kind of like that more. (laughs) (laughs) But we cut it short. Cheryl, do you have something to say about it? I was thinking about the whole question of erasure and how important it is to bring all those things together in a sangha. 
you know, when I show up, I bring all those things together with me as I sit. And it's hard to find those spaces where sitting and being a member of a sangha really works. That's where I am today. And, you know, things change. So I'm hopeful. Maybe we're just not there yet. I, I think of Dawa Tarchin Phillips' discussion of being cut off or incomplete until it's all of us there. It's not complete or whole that we really are kind of dismembered in this sense. Because ultimately, when I look at this book and see all of the richness brought to practice, that's absent from the larger Sangha in so many ways. I hope that changes, and I think it's beginning to. But I really love the way he described that. I think it is so important who our leaders are, who our teachers are. Cher always says, thinking, I wish you were part of the Sanghas I'm part of. I think you would love them, and I think you would be appreciated and embraced. But leadership is important. If we've learned anything these last four or five years, we can see what toxic leadership can do to the mind and the collective mind. And I'll say this, I've been the doan, that's like the leader in the Zen tradition, like the ritual leader on Thursday mornings Mm -hmm. in my sangha. So the violence on the Capitol took place on Wednesday. So I was chanting on Thursday morning. I was heartbroken. But I brought something very Black to the ritual spontaneously, which was a chant that I was riffing from a song by Frankie Beverly and Mays, Joy and Pain. It goes, joy and pain, sunshine and rain, joy and pain, sunshine and rain. And I thought, this is from the Black experience but it's about equanimity. And so these are things that we bring. And the Dharma, maybe with a small d, the truth of how things are, are not limited to Buddhist communities. We find them in all communities. All communities have truths that we're bringing together, which will only contribute to the whole. I'm thinking today of my compassion card that I have, the Lojang saying for today, it's like, in essence, turn lemons into lemonade. (laughs) Here's another wisdom, right? Take what's been painful and turn it into something that's beneficial. And I think that's what this book is. Ayo and Cheryl, thank you so much. It's been great talking to you. Thank you for having us. I encourage all our listeners to pick up a copy of Black and Buddhist, What Buddhism Can Teach Us About Race, Resilience, Transformation, and Freedom. You've been listening to IOU Tunde and Cheryl Giles, co-editors of Black and Buddhist, here on Tricycle Talks. Tune in next month for a conversation about environmentalism, science, and faith with Akila Chunyalpa. In the meantime, we have plenty of articles, films, and Dharma Talks online to keep you busy. If you're looking to establish a daily meditation practice or refresh on the basics, March is Meditation Month at Tricycle and we will be providing free resources and support. Visit tricycle.org to learn more. We'd love to hear your thoughts about our podcast. Write us at feedback at tricycle.org. Tricycle Talks is produced by Paul Ruest. I'm James Shaheen, editor and publisher of Tricycle The Buddhist Review. Thanks for listening. <laughs>